You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. After our interview with Democratic presidential candidate Seth Moulton, Donna Brazile and Howard Dean, two former chairs of the DNC, offered a preview of the upcoming Democratic debates. Let's listen. We're only hours away from the first Democratic debate of the 2020 campaign, and I'm pleased to be joined this morning by two prominent and impressive former chairs of the Democratic National Committee. Really appreciate your time. Donna Brazile, yep. who also was campaign manager for Al Gore in 2000, and former Vermont Governor Howard Dean, whose 2004 campaign remains a model for many Democratic candidates about how to build an insurgency through grassroots support and Internet fundraising. So really appreciate you both taking the time here to talk about this debate. What are you both looking for? We'll start with Donna mm-hmm. as you sit down tonight with whatever your something from New Orleans, perhaps. Oh, to, my God. Enjoy, yeah, to watch the I, I, I started cooking etouffee about two weeks ago. I got all <laughs> my ingredients. I'm going to stir it up tonight. If you live in Ward 4, come on by. It's going to be nice and delicious. Actually, this is more of a popcorn and red wine night uh, because I, I think this is an opportunity for the Democratic candidates to introduce themselves, to talk about their plans, their vision, um, to spend practically no time on Trump, which I know is a shocker, but to talk about the party's values and where we hope to lead the country in the future. So I think this is going to be a remarkable night for the American people to see the depth and breadth of the leadership within the Democratic Party. Governor Dean? Uh, yeah, I think you're going to see two things go on. The, the so-called front runners, the five or six that are above 5%, which qualifies as a front runner in a 25-person field, Um, You're going to see them having to avoid mistakes. Don't say something that uh, you're going to have to defend the next day. And the rest of the crew is going to have to show the American people why they should be among the top ten. I think probably something in the order of ten people will actually get to the starting line in Iowa. Um, It's going to take $20 million just to to get to the starting line. Um, And... It, the, there are going to be three or four that do it that this audience has heard of, but most people have never heard of, and uh, and they're out there. And these are this is these are actually this is a very good field. The, the vast majority of the people in this field are well qualified to to be president of the United States, but they've got to get their message out. So for the bottom of the of the list of people that aren't well known, they have to stick to a message that's very simple because they're only going to get five to six minutes for the whole night, and it has to be, and they have to connect. And if they, it, Pete Buttigieg has already done that. And so there's room for more people like that, and they have to connect to the audience by being authentic and by sticking to a single message without giving an entire policy uh, program in, in seven minutes. If you do hashtag post live, if you're on Twitter or watching this on the live stream, I'll try to get to some of your questions for the two former chairs at hashtag post live. You mentioned Mayor Buttigieg. Breaking out in a a night like this or tomorrow night, what does it take, and who's best positioned in this field to break out? Well, tonight I'm going to be looking at Cory Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar. Um, They're underrated right now if you look at their poll numbers. I'm also going to look at de Blasio. I mean, he stands up because he's so tall. And... uh, uh, but I, I'm looking at some of what I call the, the tier two candidates because I believe this is their moment to shine, to get beyond the stump speech, the slogans, but to really tell the American people why you are best positioned to be president of the United States. Remember, this is a job interview. We're interviewing a person 
to be the president of, 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 of the United States of America. So I think the voters are going to be looking for somebody who is sharp, precise, but also someone who could take us beyond this moment. And I think some of the second-tier candidates who have not received enough press coverage because of lack of, quote-unquote, name recognition and other factors, this is their moment to shine. You know, I'm going to remind Governor Dean, when, when uh, he decided to run for president, he was a long shot. You had John Kerry, you had John Edwards, you had my old boss, Dick Gephardt, my old boss, Joe Lieberman. You know, I can sit here and tell you about all my old bosses. <laughs> um, but what, what Howard Dean was able to do was to, to really strike a fire within the grassroots. People wanted more of that. They saw him as an outsider who was willing to take on the establishment, but more importantly, they felt a connection with his message. And I agree with Governor Dean. That message is so important tonight. The American people hunger for that. Is that right? I mean, we just heard from Congressman Moulton, Governor, who was more moderate in his message. You ran in 2004. It was an anti-war moment in the Democratic Party. Is the, the path to power right now about being passionate against President Trump? Or is it Absolutely not. Um, no. Look, Trump will remind us every day we, why we don't like him. And that, that, no, he will. I mean, he, all he has to do is get out and say something, and 55% of the people go, oh, my God. Um, so we don't have to do that. If we're arguing about Donald Trump with three weeks to go, three week, uh, months to go before the election, we're going to lose. Trump always has to make it about himself. Let him do that. He will make the argument for us. We have to talk about what are we going to do about the economy? What are we going to do about income inequality? How are we going to stop the Republicans from taking away the pre-existing condition uh, stuff? What are we going to do about our school systems? That's what people want to hear about. Now, you can make a few remarks about Trump and you know, hope you have a Senator I knew John Kennedy uh, time with Trump because he's an easy target. That cannot be the focus of the election or we lose. I agree. What about the DNC? Did the way they handled this this time around, did it make, does it make sense to you as former chairs? Absolutely. Look, I came in uh, with a system that we only had six debates, and we had to expand the number of town halls and forums and other opportunities for the candidates to, you know, uh, get their message out. I think Tom made the right decision to schedule six this year and six next year. And again, Governor Dean said you need $20 million. You need 20 million volunteers because to get on the ballot in some of these states, it requires you to get signatures. Here in D.C., you got to get signatures in all eight wards. Uh, there are some states where you just pay a simple fee, but we're now focusing on the delegate selection rules, which will give us more primaries and caucuses. And even in those caucus states, we're going to try to open them up so that you don't have to show up at a particular time on a cold, wintry night. So we're trying to make it more open. Uh, we listened to some of the concerns that people had in 2016, and I think what, what Tom Perez has been able to do is to open the process up. I only have one disagreement with Tom Perez, and Howard Dean and I disagree on this one as well. I am a quote-unquote automatic delegate to the convention, not just as a result of my previous service, but because I remain a member of the DNC, I do not like the fact that I will not vote on the first ballot. Now, I hope that we don't have a contested convention because I don't want to get there and be in a position where people are going to blame us for, you know, overturning the rule of the so-called pledge delegates. I don't want to get too much in the weeds. You know, I'm still on the rules committee. I'm going to retire one day, but it ain't going to be today. <laughs> <laughs> what about... Uh... 
the, the, the setup so, of the debate. So the, I'll, go, I'll take Donna on on the rules, of course, um, hmm. even though she's made Obama president of the United States. That's by one right, vote sure. in the Rules Committee. That's all right. That's good. That was, that was a good March thing. That was 31st, 2008. I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget it either. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so um, uh, I disagree with the superdelegate stuff. The truth is about superdelegates, it's a made-up issue. Superdelegates have never, in the history of superdelegates, ever selected the presidential nominee. The only reason that we exist, and I supported the change of letting us vote in the second ballot if we need or needed, the only reason we exist is because elected officials wouldn't come after the McGovern rules. They wouldn't come. So for, for three conventions, we had no congresspeople, no governors, and no senators come. You can't have the, the biggest meeting every four years of the Democratic National Committee without them coming. And they wouldn't come because they didn't want to run against their own activist base. Because only two things can happen if you do that, and they're both bad. You win, and your activist base is mad at you, or you lose, and you look like an idiot because you lost to somebody nobody ever heard of. So that's why the rules change, and I think Perez has done the right thing. I also think these debates are, they're not perfect, but they're run the right way. What we're trying to do, and what Tom was trying to do, is avoid the spectacle of the Republicans, um, where they had people on there who weren't qualified. Look, I like George Pataki. I have a few other opinions about Gilmore um, and Santorum, but those three weren't running a campaign. They just said they were running and they showed up in the debates and made it more difficult for everybody else. So what, what the DNC has done, first of all, they've avoided the junior varsity varsity uh, business, kids the, 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 the yeah. kids' table. And I think that's important because some of these so-called kids, are, one of them could very well be president of the United States and they're qualified for the, almost, almost every candidate I think is well qualified. Uh, and the second thing it does is avoid having 20 people on stage which, at the same time, which is ridiculous. It's going to be hard enough with 10. With 20, it's unmanageable. So I think Tom did the right thing. And my advantage is if you can't build a grassroots organization, then probably you're not going to be able to run for president. You don't get to parachute in and say, oh, we'll use the DNC's grassroots organization. You have to build your own. So I think, I think Perez has done a good job here. Under these new rules, the new structure, which candidate is, is best positioned to be the nominee with their mm. their campaign, their message? Uh, it's going to take us a couple more months to get to that that uh, yep. uh, that point in the process. This <coughs> is phase one. So we have several other phases. And of course, after Labor Day, when the debate rules, uh, you know, you have to have double the number of donors. Uh, your percentage in the polls must also go up. But look, after this national exposure over the next two months, if you're not able to uh, strike a chord and get support, well, ladies and gentlemen, good, you know, come on, sit on the sideline. You think uh, some campaigns may drop off this summer? Some of them will. Surely will. Yeah, yeah. Once they recognize, I mean, Lord have mercy. I mean, has anybody tried to go on a ballot in, in Pennsylvania? Have you tried? This is a race for delegates. Or New York. It's Ooh, worse. New York is horrible. Virginia is not too well. 10,000 signatures. I remember helping some of your colleagues out in 2004 because I felt sorry. I would go get up in the morning, get my coffee, and go over to Fairfax County and Loudoun County to help some of the people out. But no, I think by fall, we, we're going to see less candidates. And by the February 3rd, uh, that wintry night in Iowa, we're going to see about 10 to 12 candidates. And by the, end of, by the end of February, going into March, Super Tuesday, where you're going to see in the month of March, over 60% of the delegates will be selected. We'll, we'll be down to a, a, a rational number by, uh, by Easter. Vice President Biden's leading the polls. Is he actually, in your view, the front runner, or is his campaign more fragile than that? 
Um, well, first of all, I'm not going to comment on his campaign. Let me. Um, so here's what's happening. Um, the, this is really interesting, and I I um, recommend Nate Silver's stuff on 5:38 for this because it's really I think the best substantiated commentary that's out there. What Nat has found in his aggregation of polls, this is an unusual thing for the for the Democrats. Two thirds of Democratic voters are focusing on getting rid of Trump. That's what they want out of their candidate. One third is focusing on getting a candidate to be the nominee that uh, agrees with most of their positions on the issues. It's a fascinating time because it means that we're not as divided as we often are, um, and that, and then everything else is such everything else is such a small issue that it doesn't really have a huge effect on what happens. So you've basically got. Two thirds of the party that just wants somebody who can now. I don't. I think the jury's out on who can best beat Trump. You have to think about this. Our core base in our party is people under 35 who voted 70 percent for the Democrats, both in Virginia and in the election last year. Mm -hmm. It's women, and it's people of color. Yep. Those are our core constituency groups. And I think Stacey Abrams' philosophy about how to win in Georgia, and I agree with. Uh, Seth, that had it not been for uh, Kemp being the Secretary of State at the same time and disqualifying 750,000 voters, she'd be the governor of Georgia today. But she had a really interesting philosophy, which we haven't used in the South before, and I think it's a really good idea. Instead of trying to move to the center and be almost as conservative as the Republican and hope our base comes along with us, which they won't, just get the base really ginned up and get them to come out. If we get young people, people of color and women, to come out in big numbers, we're going to win. Doesn't matter what Trump does. If we don't get those groups to come out, we're going to lose, and it doesn't matter what else we do. Could, be, could Pete Buttigieg do that, the mayor of South Bend? Get all those groups, including African American voters, to come out? Well, that's yeah. that, that's a that's a big unknown. I don't I don't know who our nominee is. If I did, I would go out and buy another dress. I I don't know. Uh, but here's what I do know: we're going to have an exciting time. Uh, over the next uh, 496 days. This is probably one of the most exciting elections I've had in the 10 cycles that I've been involved. I've been involved in politics now since the age of nine. I'm just a day past 21. Uh, <laughs> but what I find exciting about what Governor Dean just said is that we have to enlarge the electorate. When you look at the number of people who stayed home in 2016, Hillary Clinton lost by less than 78,000 votes. I mean, 79,000, I'll, you know. So it wasn't this big victory that Donald Trump had. He was able to pick the lock because we left the door open. I mean, we left the door open. We didn't. We had a 7% drop in, in minority turnout in those key pivotal states. And when you lose a place like Michigan with less than 10,000 voters, come on. So we have to enlarge the electorate. We love the people who are voting today, but there, remember, there are over 99 million Americans who did not vote in 2016. Enlarge the electorate. Make sure that we talk to people. We cannot ignore people. I love all of these gadgets. You know, my ex-boss invented the internet, so this is a great thing. <laughs> but you gotta, and, and Howard Dean, your camp <coughs> was the first to start using right. data like, you know, it was the science. The rocket science of politics is talking to people, looking them in the eye, re being relatable, being able to know their concerns and to share their, their misery and their worry and their joy and talk to them. And that's why Biden right now is leading, because people know it. He's relatable. 
But you know what? He has a lot of, he got some good competition. We got a question about that competition here on our Twitter questions. Senator Bernie Sanders, do you think he has what it takes to rally the base in the way you're talking about Governor Dean and be the Democratic nominee, even though he's also a Democratic Socialist, someone who's to the left? You know, this socialist business is made up by all the old people in the Republican Party who were around he call, when- He calls himself a Democratic Socialist, proudly. Uh, yeah, but the, when the, the, the idea of being a socialist being an attack point is made up by old people who were alive when Czechoslovakia was suppressed in 1968. <laughs> Most of our voters weren't. Um, they are, our voters, do you realize that the average age of the Democratic caucus dropped 10 years in, 19, in 2018? I mean, this, our, our party is being taken over by young people on their terms. And the inside the Beltway, it's true. And the inside the Beltway, people are gonna be the last to figure that out. So, uh, you know, we'll, uh, look, Bernie has already shown that he can rally people and do well. He certainly has a shot. I think almost everybody has a shot. Now, what's going to happen in the next couple of days is going to be a big deal, because you are going to see people up there in the also-ran category who are, don't seem to be lighting the fire. But you're all going to, and I can't tell you who they are, and I can't tell you who the ones that are going to light the fire, but I think they're going to be three or four people tomorrow night and, the night, and tonight when people go, hey, I want to take a look at her. I don't know much about her. I never heard of her, but we ought to take another look. I, I hate to use this as an example <laughs> because you'll hear why when you, it'll be obvious when I say it. If you remember the Republican race in, I think it was 2008 or maybe it was 12, I can't remember which, 999. Herman Cain. Everybody remembers that, right? Hey, that man. shot Herman Cain from the middle of the pack to leading the pack the next week. Mm -hmm. They were having weekly debates. Now, I don't advise any Democratic candidate to go out and talk about 999, <laughs> but th that's the kind of stuff that you don't know. None of us have any idea what's gonna light up the crowd, but something might, and those will be the candidates that get a second and a third and a fourth look. And we spent two weeks talking about 999. Yeah. I don't know if forget that. But it, but, the, but it wasn't just because he got attention, he also was leading the Republican pack. Right. He, had a, he had a plan. Yeah. Senator Warren has a lot of plans. Yeah. Is, could she catch fire with her plans? She's already caught fire. She has caught fire. Here's the thing about Warren that's impressive. Every candidate's going to have to go through this. When you do this, you get knocked down. This is the toughest job in the world, and it's the toughest way to get the toughest job in the world. It is a brutal, brutal thing to go through this race, and I know that the hard way. So everybody who does it is going to get knocked down. She's been knocked down and she got up again. That is a big deal. This will happen to other candidates, but there'll be a bunch of them that get knocked down and don't get up again. So Warren is already in a place which I think is a good place for her. Now, whether she wins or whether she can beat Trump, I have no idea and I'm not gonna, not gonna you know, get into all that. But I do think You're she's- You're not sure she can beat Trump in a general election? I have no idea who can beat Trump in a general election. We, we can't possibly know that now. What about the competition for that progressive vote between Senator Sanders and Senator Warren. What do you make of that? Oh, there are many people in that lane. Uh, those are the two prominent ones. But I, what I love about uh, Julian Castro, you know, his immigration policy, right. and now Senator Warren has embraced it, decriminalizing those who are seeking freedom by coming to our country, um, seeking asylum. So I, I do believe that there are multiple candidates in that progressive lane. The question is, can they, can they move, rise to the top without ditting somebody else's car? You mentioned 999, and that was where he got attention, Herman Cain, back in 2011, 2012, mostly 2011. 
If you're a Democratic candidate on stage tonight or tomorrow night, should you tangle with the media, the moderators, in the same way Republicans did? Depends what the media does to provoke you. That's the, this is a good question because That's a great question. I don't think that if somebody uh, starts whacking one of the front runners, that's going to be a successful. I really don't. It's going to be tempting. But the problem is, in a multi-field campaign, if you whack somebody, the whacking has effect, and it also get, drives your negatives up, which means they're going to go to one of the other eight people on the stage. So it's not a good strategy to make to to, to take a, uh, advantage of the, somebody, one of the front runners, and go after them. I mean, you can do it subtly, but you really can't go right at them because you're going to make all their supporters mad, and you need them eventually if you're going to be the nominee. And, and remember, the, the, the biggest challenge we face in 2020 is to make sure the party is unified. Right. Uh, you know, after all of the voters, after all of you great people have cast your ballots, you know, we want to come together as a party and as a country so that we can take on uh, the Republican Party and, and President Trump. And we all know from history it is very difficult to defeat an incumbent. It's going to require unity. It's going to require people getting more engaged and involved, getting people registered, and, of course, getting people to turn out. What do you think the party's looking for? What's the one issue that galvanizes them? You mentioned the economy. Is there anything else? It's foreign policy matter. You have the president considering military action in Iran. When you're talking to rank and file Democrats, you know, I I basically don't believe people actually vote on issues. Most of them, I think we we vote on emotion, and the Democrats who, who have a higher level of education think we vote on issues. We don't. Our issues are our proxies for our emotions, um, and so I don't really think you asked before about democratic socialism. I actually don't think it's about left versus right. It's about what you think of the world uh, and what your view of the world is and who, who... The most important question in any poll that anybody's ever uh, done about a candidate is, does this person care about people like me? If the answer to that is no, you're in deep trouble with that voter. Uh, and if the answer is yes, you've got a decent shot. And so that's, it's really an emotional connection. It's a, an emotional bond. It's not about where they are in the political spectrum. People will tell you that in a poll, but it's not. It's about the personal connection you make, even over television, with the people you're talking to. Well, the, the emotion matters. It is, it is clear to me. The vision is also important. You know, and after 2008, Governor Dean, I felt so hopeful, so optimistic, that for the first time in my life, a child who grew up in a segregated South, the child who is a descendant of slaves, a child who had two working poor parents, I just felt so much hope, so much, you know, so much that I, you know, I convinced all my nieces and nephews, but that was the first time I didn't have to threaten them by saying, I'm not going to give you something, like help you with your tuition. They voted. But by 2016, my younger ones, I'm like, please, please. We, the emotion is important, but the issues connect them to the passion that they right. feel. Right. I am very passionate now about criminal justice reform. With the situation in South Bend that Pete, uh, Mayor Pete is dealing with, I'm very concerned about that. <clears throat> I'm concerned about these children at the border. I am so concerned. Um, one day I said to myself, I, I no longer want to adopt a dog. I got to get some of these kids. I, you know, the passion, the emotion will drive Democrats, independents, and I think Republicans to the polls. These issues matter. Foreign policy matters. Just a couple of weeks ago, right. we were going to invade Venezuela, right? And now, I'm like, Jesus, stop this. What did we, what did we learn about Buttigieg over this weekend? We don't know yet. But, this, mm. but this is a critical test for him. Uh, we don't know what we learned yet because we haven't seen what the outcome is and where people are thinking. 
But so far, he's done the right thing. Get off the campaign trail and go back and take care of the crisis right. in your state. But I think we've got to learn more about how this all sugars out. But this is an absolutely critical test about a relatively unknown candidate who had a very good start. But it also tells you, I mean, when you run for president, all of this is out there. It's <coughs> just your past right. record. And <clears throat> but the community that you serve. I mean, we've learned from New York and California and other places that you need your police workforce should mirror your community. Period. And you're telling me in your city that has not been a focus? So the mayor has to deal with these issues. And I hope he doesn't get defensive. Okay? When it comes to race, people get too defensive. Is he too defensive? Oh, right now he is. He has to address it. But I, I applaud him for going home and standing up and being there in the presence of the people who he represents. And he needs to stay there as long as is needed so that he can heal. This is about healing as well. Are you disappointed with how he's led that police force? You seem to suggest that. Well, I'm suggesting that, and it's not just for Mayor Pete, it's for every city or for to, to, reflect, to reflect the community. This is a very sensitive issue for people of color. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times. You don't want... I have a little GPS. I call her Gladys. She told me to make a legal U-turn. I said, police behind me? Hell no! <laughs> I don't know what's gonna happen when I do that, okay? I, I, I was finding myself talking to Gladys. I said, shut up! <laughs> police behind me! No, black people can't do that. White people can do that. I cannot make a legal U-turn. I'm scared. Police behind me. Hell no. R race okay. is still very... Race very... is raw. Race so is an emotion. what do you make of Vice President Biden's response and to segregation remarks? race is exhausting. Vice President Biden, how, well, how did, I, are you I, satisfied with how he handled <clears throat> his, the, his response? If, if Joe Biden would have said, who I love, respect, he's not a racist, he's a good man. If Joe Biden had said, you know, when I joined the Senate, I had to work with... They were the chairs of my committees. I had to work with them. We disagreed on X, Y, and Z. Now, I would have understood that context because that is the context we know. But this reference to he called me son and not boy, well, when he first said it, it was like, whoa, boo, whoa. My daddy was called boy. My daddy got four bronze stars. Four. Served his country. Came home, was called boy. He reminded his nine children every day to be respectful because they're going to be called boy or girl and never by their names. Joe Biden didn't put it in context, but later he did. Ladies and gentlemen, deal with race. We're getting too old as a country to keep ignoring our original sin. Deal with it. Governor Dean, race is raw. Should Vice President... Are you satisfied with Vice President Biden's response on race and the segregationist remarks? Um, uh, I think that is the kind of thing that I was talking about when I said the frontrunners are going to have to worry about saying things like that tonight, tomorrow night and tonight, and the challengers are going to have to have a different tack. Um, but people are going to say things like that. Um, you know, I mean, the, the truth about race is it's a white problem, not a black problem, and white the white community has never really done the work they have to do to address this in a serious way. And, and people like Trump make it worse because they appeal to the worst in people, not the best. So uh, we've got a lot, a long, long discussion, and I think Mayor Pete, you know, found out how hard that discussion is, uh, and which people on the national stage have a little more experience with. But uh, this is this is a... This is an issue we have to get through, and we have to get through it now. We can't wait. We can't put this off anymore. So we'll see who's going to deal with that. I tell you one thing. 
if we have two old white guys at the top of our ticket, we lose this race. Hell the hell, yeah. Absolutely. Hell, yeah. We and, do, and because you cannot motivate people, and our core base does not look like me. You cannot motivate people to get out and vote if you keep telling them one thing and then showing them something else when you're actually putting together your ticket. Not when people of color, especially women, make up the majority right. of the electorate. This is the 100th anniversary of suffrage. I am so proud we're going to see six women over two nights. We have earned a, a seat at the table, and no one should take it away from us. I am looking forward to seeing a woman on the ticket, top, bottom, I don't care. I still believe we're ready for the change. And by the way, yep. speaking of change, you know, we're in hurricane season, so y'all know I got to give my PSA. Climate change is real. Right. We need to have a conversation about it. We need to stop ducking behind all of this. Is this science or not science? I could tell you by the way my tomatoes are growing right now up in the up in Northwest. Climate change is real. All of this rain, all this water, Lord have mercy. Some, some places around the globe, they're not getting any water. They're fighting for water. And migration is caused also by climate change. Not just people fearing their lives. This is a big issue. And the Democrats will have to address it because, as you know, some other people don't think it's real. And may it's I introduce real. you to the 26th we candidate for the presidency of the United no, States? I right feel here. like Donna's about to jump into <laughs> yes. the 2020 race. Yes. <laughs> I'm turning Maybe 60 a, a at the revival. end of the year. At the end of the year, I'm enjoying my best life. I'm like Oprah now, <laughs> my best life. Donna Brazil. Governor Dean, thanks so much for joining us here today. I know uh, we really appreciate it here at the Can't you tell vote. who's the activist and who's the governor? Wait a minute. Wait a minute here. <laughs> I, think I started out as an activist. Wait a minute this here. This is my brother, y'all. He's my brother. <laughs> I love a round him. of applause for Thank these two you. former chairs. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.